Well, thank you for being here today again, and uh, I'm looking forward to our time in the Bible today. And uh, you remember last week that I, I showed you how that you have two kinds of fools. And we kind of worked all through that, and there's many, many, many fools in the Bible, different types of fools, but when it comes right down to it and you dealing with it, um, we find that there's two kinds the way you deal with them, and uh, whether they're saved or whether they're lost. And, of course, one will be the fool that is based on his ignorance. The other one will be the fool who is based on his hatred for truth uh, and, and the things of God. And I told you, uh, last week we looked at verse 4 and 5, you know, uh, uh, it will show you uh, two ways to deal with them. You deal with them differently. The one who uh, is just in ignorance, you don't answer him according to his folly. You try to work him through realizing that many times he's searching for the truth. The other one, of course, uh, you do. And we went through great examples last week of showing you that. And I gave you some biblical examples of both cases. I showed you how that in Acts chapter 18 and 19, you had Apollos. And here's a guy that was completely out of touch with his doctrine. He's still going around long after the death of Christ, preaching the baptism of John. He, he didn't hear anything else from that. He'd been in Alexandria. And uh, he comes down to uh, uh, down here in the, in the New Testament and comes into the church with Paul and he star, or, uh, Priscilla and Aquila and he begins to preach about that and talk about that and they pulled him aside and showed him that in the scriptures well, it changed, and immediately he accepted it. You're going to find a lot of people like that. Many times we're so insensitive to people that uh, the moment we sense that they don't agree with us we take a personal offense to it because of our own insecurities, and then we think that we've got to squash them like a bug to maintain our superiority. And, uh, that's, of course, that's, um, that's not what you do. And uh, the other one, uh, we found out that you do answer according to the folly. I found it interesting this week, uh, and I told you that, you know, what you do is that when you get into a situation with a a, a cult or a group or whatever, somebody who has an aspect of hatred for the Word of God. You know, you help the ignorant one. I mean, you try to get them to the truth. But then when you deal with the other one, you have to take the conceit away from them. And I told you last week that what every cult, and I went through and I showed you how the cults developed in America, and we looked at all of that. And I, I told you that they're all, because they have no history before 1800, they're all lacking in two things. Uh, and that is credibility and legitimacy. Now, I preached that last week. I don't know how many of you follow current events, uh, but, um, you know, it was interesting that uh, President Trump this last week uh, went to uh, t uh, Vietnam and met with the North, president, North Korean president. And, of course, immediately he's going to get criticized uh, from one end you know, one people say, thank you, you did a great job going over there, the other one's all that, but, the, but the, his critics, and this is a good point, and I probably, if you've heard it, you probably didn't pick up on it, but his critics said this, that President Trump is the most powerful man in the world because he's the president of the United States. And they said, why would a sitting president meet with a guy like Kim John and meet with him before the world and give him credibility and legitimacy as a real world leader. See that thing? And of course, I tried to tell you that. North Korea is a rogue nation. And of course, they, 
they're, they're a totalitarian system run by a crazed dictator who looks like an oriental Pillsbury doughboy. <laughs> he does. Cute little guy. <laughs> you know, look at this story. And, uh, and it's a thing where they, they, their, their country's in disarray. People are starving to death. Their human rights issues are out the window. They'll, they'll, he had his own brother assassinated. He caught one of our guys, American tourists, who had taken a political poster, wanted to take it home as a souvenir, arrested him, put him on trial. Nobody saw him for months, and then when they decided to let him go, uh, he's in a vegetative state in a coma, and he sends him back to America in a coma, and he, he dies. He dies... Uh, you know, it's just, it's a terrible place. And the critics of the president were simply saying, why would you, as a sitting president who has the truth of the world, as far as politics is concerned, why would you give legitimacy to a crazed man who is, has an illegitimate country, has an illegitimate government? And, and, and that's a great point. Now, I think Trump did the right thing. I mean, I think he did. I mean, you can always come back and say, hey, I tried. But my point is this. The whole unsaved world looks at taking somebody who is illegitimate and somebody who is, and you talk about conceit. North Korea is about as conceited as you could come. And, and, and to give them legitimacy by sitting down and having a debate like you are a real nation. And when you try to talk to a cult, like you're a real religion, you do the same thing. And uh, you get yourself to, you know, to the level of being able to deal with them uh, on this level of magnitude. You see what you have. You understand what you're dealing with. So that was last week. And today, you know, we're going we're gonna to move along. And all these are connected together. And uh, I won't necessarily maybe connect all the dots for you, but you're smart enough to do that. And if you're not smart enough, it doesn't matter anyhow, so it's okay. Now, we'll look at a couple of more verses today that will help us, you know, go even farther in understanding a fool. And you remember, I told you in chapter 26 that there are 10 direct references to a fool. And those 10 direct references will cover different aspects of a fool. It'll talk about and show us who a fool is. It'll tell us how he thinks. It, it'll tell us what to look for. And then obviously, as last week, it'll tell us how to deal with them. And so far, we've looked at um, f- uh, five of them, uh, four of them. We looked at verse one, that the fool is like a snow in winter, uh, a, a snow in summer, and uh, rain at the harvest. We, we looked at verse three, and we saw another aspect of a fool, like a horse and an ass and a fool who is unbroken. And then last week, we looked at two more, how to answer a fool, and then how not to answer a fool. And uh, you know, we're going to look at a couple more today, and we'll begin to tie all these together. Before we do that, let's go to the word of prayer. And I want to, you know, I want to again thank publicly last night. Um, I didn't get a chance to say this last week because it, I didn't find out until afterwards and announced to Thursday, but uh, Tobin and Tara have opened up their house for volleyball that if you have young kids, uh, you know, kindergarten, uh, babies to kindergarten, you can drop them off there. And I know they had two kids last night and uh, 
Um, and if so, you can do, you can do that. They're here today, and you can set that up with them. That's a great thing, and the uh, uh, kids had a great time, and uh, it works out for everybody, and it was really good. So if you want to do that, if you have children, you can talk to them. But I want Tobin to stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning. Thank you, buddy. Now, let's read our verses today. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 26, uh, verses 6 and 7. It says this, He that sendeth a message by the hand of a fool, cutteth off his feet, and drinketh damage. The legs of the lame are not equal. So is a parable in the mouth of a fool. Now, we're going to look at another aspect of a fool today, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of more. Uh, here's two more for us. And verse 6 says, He that sendeth a message by the hand of a fool cutteth off his feet and drinketh damage. Now, the verse is a really good principle, and it will be a great guiding principle for ministry. If you ever get to the place where you, you are over people or you're a pastor or you whatever, uh, you know, this is a great guiding principle that, that you will use. And we have learned much from the book of Proverbs about fools, and we're continuing to learn from it. We know that the fool is slothful and he's wasteful. We know that a fool is uncommitted. He's undependable, uh, can't depend on him. Bible likens him to a sluggard. Uh, he won't deal uh, with his own family. As many times, most of the time, his own family is in a mess. You know, he rejects correction and reproof. He continues to make bad choices and bad decisions. He slanders and talks about others. And he never certainly learns from his mistakes. Uh, you know, he'll never do any work for the Lord. And uh, he'll forsake all the clear principles of the Word of God that could ever help him out of being the uh, foolish person that, that he is. And this verse is just clearly saying, and we'll start with it in its base and then we'll move from there. It's just clearly saying you can't depend on a fool to get the job done. You just can't. Now, in our verse, in verse 6, we have three important things we want to look at here, and it'll help us put it together. First of all is, he says, the message. Now, the message here in our context will be the gospel uh, of Christ or, or Bible truth, somebody taking the word of God to someone else. And in this case, uh, the fool, uh, he has been entrusted to deliver a message. And, of course, uh, we have seen this all the time, uh, and, and I've seen it all my life in some of the biggest ridiculously stupid uh, situations that ever got out of control all started with a man who gave a message to somebody that was not prepared to take out, and it just you'll see how the damage gets done here as we, as we move on. Now, let me say this, and I know all of you know what I'm saying right now. Uh, when, when we got saved, God had a message for us, and it was through that message that we got saved. God showed us our spiritual condition. He showed us that we were a sinner, and we need, uh, needed salvation. And through the message that you heard preached, maybe through a church a preacher on the radio, your own, uh, somebody witnessed to you, you got the message. And that message was that you needed to be saved, and it showed you your true spiritual condition, and you acted upon that. 
And after we got saved, uh, God will then have a message to others that he wants to give through us. In other words, when you receive the message that somebody gives you personally and it changes your life and you become a Christian, at that point, then God wants to take you and take the message that you just heard and he wants through you to give it to others. Now, my job and the job of this church is to prepare you, to get you ready for that. Uh, that when we send you out someplace that, uh, with a message that uh, you're going to do a good job with it and you're going to do everything that, that God would, would have you to do with it. And of course, uh, you know this, that uh, uh, there will be a process to preparing you to deliver the message. Nobody gets saved and the next day they're just really ready to go out and, and do the work. In their basic form, they may be able to tell somebody that you just got saved, but they really can't go much farther than that. And it's a thing where, you know, uh, there has to be a process. And I know everybody's different. And, and when you're dealing with people in a church this size or even in a small church, you know, you, you have those issues. You have people who just don't ever want to do anything. You have those that are up and they're down. They're in and they're out. They're the city broken down without walls. Everything they do in their life is an emotional, you know, something. And, uh, you know, it, 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 gets to, it gets to be a place where you've got to work through all of that to get somebody where they're ready to deliver that message. And, you know, to simplify it, when we start out after God saves you, uh, the, the work uh, has to be done on the inside of you, or what we call the inward man. In fact, you will see very quickly that when you start to teach somebody the Bible and it starts to penetrate into them, you're going to find out pretty quickly what you're dealing with. They're either going to accept the truth and build on it, or they're going to reject the truth and, and not build on it. And, uh, you know, just like we talk about the snow in summer, the contrast begins to unfold right before your eyes. And, you know, I've said this many times, uh, the Bible changes you in three fundamental ways. And, uh, you know, and this is a great devotion. We've been talking about little short devotions that just, you know, really get the point across. And then you get in, you get out. And there's little things like this that, that you can take and develop. It also would make a great sermon. I preached it before, not here, but I preached it places. But it's a, it's a standard truth that when you begin the change in your life, when you begin that process of getting to the point from being foolish in your life to being having some wisdom in your life, it's only going to come uh, three ways. And it starts with the inward man. And, uh, you know, that's when you got saved, that's where you go to work. The inward man has to be changed first. Once you change the inward man, then you're going to see that through that process then the outward man gets changed. You, you see people all the time who on the outward, they claim to be saved, but there's no real difference in their life. And we scratch our heads and people talk about, well, I wonder, and the answer is simple. For there to be a change on the outside, there has to be a change on the inside. And if there is no change on the inside, most likely there's been, uh, on the outside, most likely there's no change on the inside. So the Bible changes the inward man. The Bible changes the outward man. And then, of course, in an overall concept, the Bible changes the end of man eternally. And, uh, you know, you've, you've got to be able to see and understand that. There's a great example of this in John chapter 12. And John chapter 12 is, is the story there of Mary. And it's always been an amazing story to me. And, uh, you know, uh, I, 
I, I heard probably one of the greatest messages your brother preached, Dan preached this message years ago, and I never forgot it. It was a Dan Schmidt. It was a great, uh, it was a great message, and it, it, it took for me, you know, I took a lot of things out of it, but I never remembered what he said, and it was a really good message. And it said in John chapter 12, verse 3, it said, Then Mary took a pound of ointment of spikered, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor uh, of the ointment. And I, I looked at that, and I thought to myself, uh, you know, every, that verse, when you just read it, it just seems like the events that were transpiring are taking place. But Mary in the Bible is a picture, and she's a contrast. You have Mary, and then you have her sister Martha. Mary would be the wise person. Martha would be the fool. Martha's always doing things to be seen to people. She, everything she does, she has an ulterior motive. She wants people to look at her and how much she loves God. Mary is behind the scenes. When you always find Mary, you always find her at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest place for all of us to be and to stay. And, you know, when you, when you look at this, Mary comes to the place where she takes a pound of ointment of spikered. And the Bible says it's very costly. And it says here, and here again, is the great three-point principle. It says that what she does is that she takes that and she anointed uh, his feet. And then she uses her own hair to wipe his feet or to rub it in. And the Bible says that when she did that, opening it up and putting it on his feet, that the odor from the ointment filled the whole house. And I thought to myself, that's exactly the picture of what has to take place. Because when, when you and I get saved, um, you know, we have to look Godward. And the place for you and me in our life is at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when she sat at his feet, she's looking up at him and she's looking Godward. But then the Bible says that she took that and she put it on his feet, but then she got personally involved. She obviously had long hair. I doubt very seriously had short hair. She was just rubbing her head up around his feet. <laughs> you never know. But she takes her long flowing hair and she, she's rubbing and wash, washing or whatever she's doing with it, but she, she's, getting, she's, she's getting personally involved. You see, the first thing she did was an act that went Godward. The second thing she did was get involved, and that was inward. And then when she got personally involved, the Bible says, because of what she did and how she did it, that the odor filled the whole house. You see, there's outward. You see, once you look Godward in your life, and once you take it inward, then it's going to change not only inside you, but it's going to change the outside, and everybody in the house is going to know it. It's an incredible concept. Bible says it was very costly. And I've often wondered, you know, uh, the Bible says that we are to, when we walk with the Lord and serve the Lord, that we are to count the cost. I think when Dan preached this, Dan said uh, that it was, uh, the cost of this was about a year's wages. And I've often thought to myself, how much are we willing to spend of our lives to make Christ smell good? And, you know, we've talked before about the odors and the aroma and the sweet savor and the smell, the perfumes and all of that. 
the relationship with Christ, you and me, like the Garden of Eden, where everything must have been just absolutely incredibly beautiful. And, and the smells of all of those all of those fragrant flowers and all of the things uncorrupted by man and the curse on the earth. What a fragrance that must have been. That's a picture of our relationship. And the real question is, how much are we willing to spend of our lives? How much are we willing to understand the cost it's going to take for you and for me through our life to make him smell as good as she did? But it's always going to cost you something. Most of God's people, the real problem in their life is they want all these things. They just don't want the cost that's involved because it will cost you some things. And it's an incredible, it's an incredible story. And everything that we do here in this church is to try to get you to that end. Now, the wise man, the guy who our church is filled with him, he will see that. He will adapt himself to that three-point program. He'll let you work on the inward man. He'll allow God to change him inwardly and affect the outward. And, uh, you know, he'll keep his mind and focus on, on the things of God, always looking Godward. And, you know, it's through this, this three-point system of change that will uh, lead to that transformation that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. We talked about cults last week, and, and um, you know, uh, every one of them have uh, one basic characteristic, uh, several basic characteristics, but one of them is that they all go through a brainwashing process. And they all are not allowed to associate with other Christians, other churches. If you were ever a Jehovah Witness, you know you're not allowed to ever go to another church. If you're a Roman Catholic, you know they frown desperately on you ever getting in another church or going anyplace. Most of them are very tight. They're very connected. Um, they, they, they don't allow any penetration, as I said last week, into the young ones. The ones that you always get to deal with will be the older ones that are rock solid and you ain't going to move them. All you can do is just, like, like we talked about last week. And, you know, when, when you get saved... You also go through a brainwashing process. The Bible says by washing of regeneration, you renew your mind daily. The difference in they're brainwashed with the, uh, with the filth out of the, out, of the, out of the Christian stuff and junk out of the bit of hell. You're brainwashed with the pure word of God, but it sets both of them on a path. Your path is one of transformation. Their past is one of damnation. And God begins to take you and transform you. But you got to do the work. I've told you before, all I can do is give you the tools. And uh, my job is to help you in that preparation. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1 says, the preparation of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. You do your job to get and prepare your heart You look at it Godward, inwardly, outwardly. You look at those things. You prepare your heart because the preparation of the heart in man. You have to do the work. And when you do, the answer will come from the Lord. But it won't come without any preparation. And this is one of the great lost truths of Christianity today. 
Uh, we think that, uh, you know, that uh, just, there has to be no preparation. Churches today don't put any emphasis on preparing you for anything. And then everybody just thinks, well, you know what, I'll just go out and do what I do and, and everything will be just fine. Now, in, in ministry, uh, to be uh, entrusted to carry and deliver the message that, uh, that any church would have for you, but certainly this one, the models are so clear in the Bible. Uh, a man or a woman must be prepared. They've got to prove themselves. We get the idea that, you know, because a person gets saved and they go to a church a long time, that that's, that's all the qualification that he needs. And, of course, that's not true. That's very dangerous. The great examples in the Bible, the greatest one, hands down, is in First Samuel chapter 3, when you have Samuel himself. And the whole story there of how God prepared Samuel. And the greatest thing about it is, is the fact that it was the preparation that Samuel did working in the temple. And yet, he's working with Eli, and he's working with Eli, who is not the best priest in the world, and his sons are absolutely corrupt. And it shows you that no matter what the system is that you're in, if your heart is toward God, the bottom line is God can still prepare you. And it was a thing where at the end of the chapter, chapter 3, it says that all Israel... All Israel, and I guarantee you, he didn't take an ad out in the local newspaper saying, hey, I'm Samuel, and I've been at the temple all these years, and now I'm ready to go. It was, it was the preparation of his heart that God took and used to tell everybody, hey, this guy is ready to go. You saw it with Paul and Timothy. You know, First and Second Timothy to us is... Uh, is a great book, and many times we we don't see it in, as it really is and as it is intended. But it's a letter that Paul wrote, two letters to his own son of the Lord Timothy, preparing him. And uh, boy, I'll tell you what: if you want to understand the ministry, get into First and Second Timothy. Look at the charges that he gives to Timothy, and see if they line up to where you're at in your life. And then you have you have Paul. Uh, writing to to Titus, uh, another young man that he won to Christ. And these guys are pastors, and he's preparing them, and he's showing them. And these, to us, we read it, and we get messages and verses or principles out. But at the end of the day, he wrote these to these boys that he won to Christ to prepare them. Then you have Paul to Philemon. And that's another great story how Paul was preparing them. And he prepared them because Paul understood the great truth that for you and me to carry the message, you have to prove yourself. It isn't a thing where you just pick up your Bible and because it's the right one, off you go. These models are there for a reason. I'll tell you another one. Even Christ himself. When he came at the first coming of Christ, when you look at the book of Matthew, we're studying that up in Lincoln right now. I think we're on that. So, Carolyn, if you're watching, I'm on, I'm on for this Tuesday night. But, <laughs> but the bottom line is Christ himself followed the same pattern. And it's a thing where that pattern is, is the right pattern to follow. When he came in the book of Matthew, he came to proclaim himself the king of the Jews. That's why Matthew is dealing with that kingdom that he's coming to establish but he just didn't show up and said here I am you have to accept me you know what he did everything he did when he showed up 
up to the rejection in chapter 12 and 13 was simply him proving to the nation of Israel who he was. He, he proves that he's the Messiah by the signs and wonders because they're told to look for signs and wonders in Exodus chapter 4. He shows up with John the Baptist because the prophecy and all that's connected with that. Everything that he does up to 12 and 13 where they make their rejection, everything that he does, he does to prove to the nation of Israel that he is who he says he is. And many of them who knew the Old Testament, the wise men, they knew the Bible, they knew what to look for, and they knew who he was. It was the fools who were conceited who rejected it. But my point is this, you have to prove yourself. Certainly you don't think that you can just step into any church, any ministry, and say, here I am, when Jesus himself went through a proving process. And that's just the way it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5. What another great passage this is. And it tells us to examine ourselves, whether it be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves. How that Christ, uh, Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. And here again, another little three-point devotion. The first thing he says that we as Christians need to do is we need to examine ourselves. You see, that's God word. Then the second thing we need to do is know ourselves. That's inward. And then the third thing he says is prove your own selves. That's outward. And every child of God either have those three things in their life where you're constantly examining yourself based on your examination of yourself. You come to know yourself. And then through that, you prove yourself. It's the process that, that has been enacted down through uh, everything in the Bible. And it's a thing where it's, a, it's an incredible concept, and it's a concept that has been lost today. You know, when you, when, you, when you start out here, you get discipled yourself, you begin to grow through some things, and you begin to end that process where you want to help and work with people. You know, you, you, you start out discipling somebody, usually in a group. Then you'll maybe, some of you will stick with that and move into discipleship too, or a little upper levels. Then as you grow in that process, you'll work with me in the people ministry, and you'll work with situations where you do marital counseling for people who are going to get married, or you work with problems as they come in, and I, you know, lay them out to you. You get out with our restart ministry or the street ministry with Chris. You go down to the mission. I think one of the greatest things that we do is, is when we play volleyball or softball that you take over being a captain. I've watched every strong leader in this church got to where you're at because something so simple and so basic that you took a team, you were responsible for it, and you did what you were supposed to do. Whether you see it or not, it's more than a little volleyball team. That is your church. For six or seven or eight weeks, that's your church. You have the same kind of people in that team that we have in this church. You're going to have some that are lost. You're going to have some that are really good. And you have some that are just, the only way you could get them to come to church was to get them to play ball. It's the same system. And you have to, in that small little system, you have to exercise your senses. And God takes those things. 
Uh, you know, you, you realize that uh, there's, you, I've seen it. You talk about a burden for this person or this person here or what you want to do. And, and I get that. And that's exactly what God will do. We see it with the people up in Lincoln. They had their, their, uh, their Delta meeting and some of the singles went up there and all this, this last week. And, you know, you see it immediately how that, you know, you start to put yourself into those things. When we go to Wichita, it's the same thing. You just, you, you start to give what God has given to you and you go with the message. The message that God originally gave to you, you take it now and you give it to somebody else. And, you know, it's a thing where in this church, you, you, we, we help others in a number of ways. There's people who, every base that is covered. And it's a thing where we, we just really, really, really uh, are here to help people. And God has put in our ministry here some incredible guys and women who just are always there to help somebody. Just like all I had to do yesterday was just mention Jeff and Cheryl, uh, uh, Jeffrey and Cheryl, and bang, it fills up because people want to help. Gary's not here. Gary Potter, he's up in Detroit, I think, in a car thing up there he had this weekend. But you know what? You can call Gary at 3 o'clock in the morning. If your car's in a ditch someplace, he'll come and get you. I've never seen him say no to anybody. You've got a, he's got a whole fleet of tow trucks. If you're driving a tractor-trailer 14-wheeler, he'll get you out of the ditch if you're in one. And I've never heard him say no. Uh, he, he, he does everything. He, he, anybody who needs something, he's there. I mean, a guy like that is invaluable. I mean, hey, if you're stuck in a ditch, don't call me. <laughs> uh, I'll pray for you. I'll call a tow truck for you. If you're asking me to come get you out of the ditch, if the blind lead the blind, they both fall in the ditch. That's my verse for you. But you got to have people in your church that will, doesn't matter what it is. That's what pulls it together. That's what makes it work. It's an attitude that we're all here to help each other. Nobody is better than anybody else. Nobody's necessarily smarter than anybody else. As old Mel used to say, a church ought to be not full of people who know the Bible and don't know the Bible or people who kind of know the Bible or people who, you know, really know the Bible. A church ought to be just full of beggars with one beggar telling another beggar where to go get bread. And that's it. You know, and, and what happens is, is that when you do that, God will take that and like with Samuel, like with Timothy, like with Titus, People recognize who you are. They recognize that God is using you in your life. It becomes obvious. And I'm not saying you're, I'm not saying you're perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We all got our problems. But people begin to know and they realize that there is a prophet in Israel, just like Samuel. When Paul and Barnabas, when God wanted them to go out in Acts chapter 13 to uh, start Gentile churches. Now, Paul had been on Mount Sinai for, he'd been gone for at least 10, 11 years from when he got saved to where he pops up again. There's a time period that he's missing, and we know where he's at. He's probably, he's in Arabia for three and a half years, and he's probably on Mount Sinai where Moses was, getting everything that God wanted him to have uh, for the understanding the start of the church, just like Moses did with the law. But wherever he is, he's having time with God. And when he comes back, he clearly knows that he is the one man. 
The gospel that he's preaching that is gospel that you and I preach because it was given to him directly by God. You know what he did? He said, it's my gospel. And it wasn't his gospel per se, but it was his gospel because God gave it to him and him only. And then he gave it to everybody else. And you know what? There is a message that God will give to you and you only. Where would we be today if Paul would have kept that message to himself? We'd be in the same place that the people that God wants to put in your life will stay in if you don't give them the message that God gave you. But he had to be prepared, didn't he? Yes, he did. And in Acts chapter 13, after he's been had all this training and knows everywhere, it wasn't the fact that he walked into the church at Antioch and said, oh, by the way, guys, I am the Apostle Paul, and I know you haven't, don't know me yet, but in time you'll read all of my books because I am the one. No, you know what he did? He went to work in the church. He did what he was supposed to do. And the Bible says that through that preparing and through that service in his New Testament local church of being faithful, being diligent, the Holy Spirit of God said to the leadership of the church, separate unto me, Paul and Barnabas. See, there's a process. There's a process. And, you know, the whole time you're being watched. I, I comb this church for every spark of leadership that I can find. And I, you know, I, I, my job is to groom you. My job is to help you. My God is to get opportunities as I see you grow for you to prove yourself level by level. And I mean, you have to walk through the door of every opportunity that God gives you, but I'll have the key to open the door for you. But you got to do the work. You got to decide at some point in your life, you're done with your foolish ways. And as you prove yourself in faithfulness, in dedication, in your being to be adaptable, that you can be dependable, that you're flexible, but you never break, and you're durable, but you never wear out. And most of all, that God can trust you with a message, that you're going to take it and do the right thing with it. God's message through us to others based on the message that God gave you and me. And, you know, the question, like we talked about, knowing yourself, examining yourself, all those things, we ask ourselves, where are we at in that process? Where are we at in getting God's knowledge, God's facts, and then turning that into God's wisdom and understanding? Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, when he's saying to Timothy, he says, you know what? I want to use you, and I believe God is going to use you greatly, and I think you're going to do a great job as a pastor. But I want to tell you, you've got to get prepared because he told him, not a novice. You can't be somebody who doesn't know what you're doing. Getting this process working in your life. Every message I preach, every Bible study I teach, everything that we do, without me ever saying it, the underlying current is to try to get you working in this process. At any time, I will send you out. We will send you out. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this is uh, with a message. Uh, I, I want you to be prepared. Because the Bible says if we send you out as a fool and you're unprepared, it says it's going to cut off the feet. Now, let's talk about that. That's our second thing we want to talk about here. 
feet in the Bible will be obviously your walk with God. We studied a couple of weeks ago about Asa back in Second Chronicles, how he got a disease in his feet. Instead of going to God, he went to the physicians and he wound up dying. So feet in the Bible will be your walk with God. Also, feet in the Bible will be us carrying the message of God to others. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7 says, Beautiful are the feet that bring good tidings. And he's talking about the gospel there. Back in Exodus chapter 12, when you have the great nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, we know that's a picture of, of you and me. Israel is son of God as a corporate nation. You and I as a son of God as an individual. Egypt, the type of the world. And when God brought them out, he brought them out through the blood of a lamb. And when he brought them out at the Passover, he tells them, he says, when you eat this, you get ready to move out this night. And he says, you get your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand. You know what that tells me? That tells me when you get saved, you better get ready because God's got a message he wants you to give to somebody. You get your shoes on your feet. I mean, it's just that simple. To carry the message of God to others uh, through teaching and preaching will, without a doubt, being the highest honor and privilege that you can have. I mean, you look at, you know, we think, uh, I, I look back this last week when, when Nancy, I think it was Nancy Pelosi, he was the one that was ragging on Trump because of the fact that he gave Kim Jong-Chu or you or whatever you, who, uh, an audience. You know, and she says, he's the most, how, how could the most powerful man in the world do that? Well, I got news for you, Nancy, baby. The most powerful man in the world as the world's concerned, might be the president of the United States because he can put his number on the button. But I'll tell you what, the most powerful man in the spiritual world is a common man with a common Bible that's got God in his heart and the message in his mouth. And you say, well, the president can push a button and, and, and send a nuclear rocket over and blow out a whole nation. Let me tell you something. I know something that's a thousand times more potent and powerful than any nuclear bomb you got. It's a King James 1611 authorized version. Say, how do you know that? Because I know right now nine countries that ban that Bible. I don't know one that banned nuclear weapons. You know why? Because they're afraid of that one. That's the most powerful person. And the greatest privilege in this world is for God to allow you and me with the message. I certainly don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I mean, uh, and a lot of times we take that for granted. And when we get educated, you know what happens? We think we do deserve it. And that's why the message gets all messed up. The best position you can always stay in is let God prepare you and all of your life just realize and understand, never lose sight of how unworthy you are for that preparation. The moment you start to think, yeah, I'm God's guy, you're in trouble. I learned a long time ago, God doesn't need me, doesn't need you. I know if God can't get you, he'll get a woman, Deborah. If he can't get a good woman, he'll get an ass back there with Balaam. But he'll get what he needs to get the message out. You know, God could have done it any way he wanted. You know, birds are the greatest little chirpers in the world. They're always singing. They're always chirping. In the morning, you come out there, and they're just going to town over there. You realize that God created the birds, don't you? You realize that God could have put in those birds' mouth the ability that every one day morning they chirp. They're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, he couldn't do that. Well, he gave an ass a great message back in Numbers. Great message. Better than most of the asses that are preaching this morning. <laughs> it was a great message. And it's a thing where, you know, he could have done that. 
Did you ever walk out in the morning on your front porch and a spider web is, is out there, and you know, the dew, and it's all silvery, but little, it's beautiful. Now, I, 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 spiders always amaze me. I don't like them, but they've always amazed me. <laughs> I feel bad every time I kill one, but you know what? I just don't like them. You get those big black body, black and yellow, you know? Call them garden spiders. <sighs> big old things. Uh, and there's big old legs out there, you know. And they'll 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 spin it around, and it's it's a beautiful pattern. And, and, and now I get, you got to ask yourself, who taught them that pattern? Do you think that they're doing this? You know, I I don't know how they spin their web, so bear with me. But with instructions, left, right, turn. You know, do you really? What gave them the presence of mind? to be able to intricately put together a spider web. Well, I want to tell you something. The same God that put the intricate in that could have just as easily had them put the gospel in it. I mean, you go out in your front porch and see the spider web that says, Jesus saved. You got something going in your house. <laughs> God could have done it anywhere. Hey, how do you think those geese and those ducks know how when it's time to fly back south? You think there's a little radio beacon that they turn on down in South Louisiana? No. God built that into them. In other words, what I'm trying to say is when God put his creation together, he intricately gave them things that we are astounded of and how they do. So he could have just as easily allowed them to have the message. I mean, the Bible says the invisible things of him, creation of the world, are clearly seen and understood, but the things that God made... He made the sun a type of Jesus Christ, the moon a type of, of the church. He made the stars a type of angels. He, he did all of that. And he could have just as easily fixed it that his own creation put out the gospel. You know what? He chose me and you to do it. I don't get that. Every animal God created, everything that God creates, it follows the law of God. Do you know that? Except man. I mean, animals don't leave their little kids. You watch geese. I walk over there at Kanegi Park. I watch the geese. The geese are incredible to watch. You know that when geese pair up, a male geese and a female geese, the gooses, you know, when they get together, they don't leave each other. And if you're hunting and you shoot one of them, the other one just stands around. I, we, I was driving one morning real early going out to, uh, uh, going to Ohio, and we just turned on 350 there by, right off from my house, and I, 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 two deer had just went across the road, and a, one of the deer had gotten hit with a car, and it was laying there. And it was the saddest thing I ever saw in my life. The other deer, I don't know which, I couldn't tell which was male or female, but the other deer was standing over them, nudging it to get up. And was standing there and almost got hit itself. Now, if animals can have that kind of compassion for somebody else, what is wrong with us? Most of us would not only enjoy that person getting run over, but then stand there and say, back up and do it again. <laughs> Why God chose us with a message, I have no idea. I'm about as, I'm about as worthless with the message as you are. But God shows it that way. 
to carry the message of God is the greatest honor and the privilege that we can have. But you and me have to submit ourselves to a higher accountability to do it. And we got to count the cost involved in it. And this is what doesn't happen. First of all, we don't look at it as, as, a, as the precedent that it is. And second of all, we never stop and count the cost. And when it comes to the message of God and carrying the message of God, let me tell you, fools do not need to apply. The areas of our personal life must be in order. And it's a thing where, you know, you allow God to build into your life. Now, he says a fool with a message in his hand will uh, cut off his feet. And then he says, and drinketh damage. When you have it all, when you don't have it all together first, it will audibly do some damage. Uh, You don't give people uh, spiritual responsibility uh, to make them spiritual. And boy, I've seen this all my life in churches. It's one of the greatest mistakes that they make in ministry. It's the fact that you've got somebody that hasn't really, he's struggling with things. So you think that by giving them spiritual responsibility, that will solve their spiritual problems. All it does is cause damage. I remember back in a church that I was associated with for many years, years and years and years ago, uh, that, uh, you know, they would actually, uh, when it came deacons every year, they would look around and we'd have a meeting and we'd talk about it. And the Sunday school guys would, they had classes back then. They would actually put people out for a deacon and they actually followed the reasoning that I have a guy who hasn't really joined the church yet or is not really dialed in. But I think if we make him a deacon, that'll really dial him in. Now that's the, that's the truth. And then it got so out of whack that one year, some idiot guy came up with the idea of putting in junior deacons. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, is that like a junior bird man? What is a junior deacon? And the idea was take younger guys, make them junior deacons, that someday they may grow up into a real deacon. You are out of your mind. Two of the most important offices in the Bible, the only two connected to the church is one, the office of a pastor and the office of a deacon. And if you look at First and Second Timothy, the qualifications are almost identical. And we come to the place that we think that we can take somebody who hasn't really counted the cost, hasn't really prepared themselves, and then give them spiritual responsibility, and they're going to be okay. I've seen him give opportunities to preach so uh, you can get past the issues that you can't get past. And I'm telling you, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing where uh, it, that just doesn't work. And it always, it always causes issues. You have to get through a biblical process where you prove yourself by knowing yourself and examining yourself and get to the place that you are, have established yourself in the Word of God. Word of God, number one, and in the church you're in, and number two. It's not up to me to give you credibility. It's not up to me to recognize you uh, in this church. It's up to the body of this church to recognize you. All I do is give you the tools. 
All I do is just give you what you need, provide for you, make opportunities for you as you go through those doors of opportunity. But you have to build a strong consistency. You have to build it undeniably. And again, I'm not, we're, nobody's looking for sinless perfection here. There's three powerful dynamics of our church. And maybe you see it, maybe you don't. I don't really care. Every pastor that has come in here over the last years has pulled me aside and they've all said the same thing. And it's a thing where, uh, you know, our church is what it is uh, simply because of these three dynamics of three people groups allowing God to do in their life what they've done. And the first one is all our young couples. Most churches today that you will go to or find are basically Baptist dinosaur graveyards. They're filled with people that are 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. There's no young couples. The pastor is in semi-retirement. He checked out a long time ago. Most of them, this is the true statement, most of fact, somebody told me that this week. I can't remember who it was. Somebody told me this, but it's so true. They don't have a lot of people, but they have a lot of money. And it's because they have older people have supported and gave it for years and years and years, and they, they don't spend it on ministry, so they just chalk it away someplace. And they've got, uh, there's a little church up there right by Raytown South. Um, that is, um, I can't remember the name of it, it's a little Southern Baptist church. And I knew the deacons in there very, we worked out together. They were, were good friends of mine and they were good guys. And, and, and the pastor there was an absolute idiot. He didn't want to work. He didn't want to do anything. He did nothing for the church. He, he lived right by the church. He just walked through his backyard into the church, preached and came home. It was an absolute joke. And that church is dead. It's dying. Nobody will go there. It'll go to the place where it's going to close someday just because the last person is going to die on the evening service. <laughs> and, and you look at it, and, you, and, and yet, why doesn't it close? Because it's got, I think he told me, almost a million dollars in the bank. And so they can continue to pay this guy's salary for Lord knows how long. Fix things that need to be fixed. And everybody just keeps moving along, but there's nothing happening. And it's a thing where, you know, the churches are like that today. There's no, there's no young blood in them. Pastors say the same thing. They say, how do you do it? How do you get all these young couples? And how do you, how do you, you know, I can't get them going in my church. Well, yeah, look at you. Who would want to come hear you preach? Not that I'm a great preacher, but I can tell some really good jokes that will keep you coming. <laughs> but it's a thing where, you know, they just don't get it. They don't know how to reach that crowd. They don't know how to realize in every, every culture there's a group that you want to attract and you want to get to keep your church going, and that's what you do. And when you get a core base of young couples who are on fire for the Word of God, they're going to draw other couples. People are going to see their marriage. They're going to see their kids. They're going to see their life, and they're going to say in their wrecked out world, I want that too. And then what you do then, because you prepared yourself, you give them the message. I'll tell you something else. It's our singles. You guys amaze me. As the couples do, you amaze me. I mean, you actually do. I watch you guys. I watch you work with kids, especially the high school kids. I watch some of you girls take those little high school girls, and even below high school, 
and you, 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 you play with them, you laugh with them. The moment you walk down the stair, they all run over to you. You're never too busy saying, well, I'm a teenager or I'm, a, I'm, I'm 20 years old, you know, you know, I got things. No, no, you're never too busy for them. You're walking around carrying them. Sometimes one in each arm. And they run to you. They, you know why? Because you're allowing God to be the role model in their life. Here we have a place where it's good, clean, Christian, Bible-based. Everything is there. And sometimes these kids get out into school and they get out into the world and they get their friends. You're making an investment in them just by being their little buddy. I want you young guys take these kids and disciple them. I'll come down here on a Monday night or a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night. There's always somebody in here with one of our young guys, and you guys are putting yourself. You go up to Lincoln to work with those young kids up there. Do you you not know the impact that that has in young people's lives? I mean, they're either going to have you or they're going to have the world. When somebody comes into this church, you guys stand in line to work with them. They don't come in here and you, 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 I watch you. You go to something and you're all over them. And they don't have a chance. You simply invest your life into their lives. And it makes a difference. And this is, this, this is no, you know, it would be wonderful if, if it was some great secret that we found it's the easiest thing in the world to do. Just taking your life and the message God gave you and giving it to somebody else, but not doing it as a fool. And then we have, I call them my oldies but goodies. You know, it's been amazing to me, uh, you know, how that so many of us were together for so long and then God closed that door, and then you went your way, and I went mine. And then I had my things to learn, you had your things to learn, and then here we are, and now God's bringing you back. And as far as I am concerned, guys like you form the bedrock of this church. You've been with me for years. You know how I think. You know what I do. You have the same love and the same passion. You probably got burned someplace else. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Getting burned is a good thing as long as you use it the right way. And now because you went that route, you're more valuable now that you're here than you ever would have been if you wouldn't have went through it. And I know that push comes to shove. I got the couples and I got the singles, but they don't have your depth of experience. They're going to get there someday. But my goodness, if push comes to shove and the walls come falling down, you're the backup. You're the ones who are, are going to hold the line. And everybody that's younger than you, the couples and the singles, when it all comes, they look to the olders to see you holding the line, they'll hold the line because everything rises and falls on leadership. And even our old guys and gals, when I say old, you know what I'm talking about, my age. There's an old saying. If you got an old dog and you want to make him rejuvenated, get a puppy. Because the puppy will get the old dog acting like a puppy. 
And that's what does us all good around here, us older guys and our older women. It's all you young pups. You keep us young. You're vibrant. You know, when it comes to the Bible, you say, I want to be like you guys. When it comes to playing ball and volleyball, we say, we want to be like you guys. You do. And, you know, and you can see now where a, a pastor who all he has is a bunch of old dead people. I mean, they're great people. They're going to they're gonna grace the stairway of heaven. I get it. But, I mean, they're past it, man. I mean, they're, 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 they're done. They're, 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 their deal now is to, you know, just to get home alive. <laughs> and I can see where a pastor falls into that. Because, I mean, you are who you associate with. And if I had a church like that and not, I didn't have you guys, I know, hey, you guys, I'd be over at John Knox Village with my Velcro strap shoes on shooting that thing down the shuffleboard thing. <laughs> the dynamics here. The dynamics here is nothing more than whether you're one of the young couples, whether you're the young singles. Certainly, I put our high school kids into that group. Or you're the oldie but goodies. The bottom line is, almost 90% of this church has said, I want God. I got the message he gave me. I want God to use the message to somebody else. And I'm willing to prepare myself to do it. That's the key. That's the key. And if that process of accountability and responsibility of the message of God is not held in place, it'll, it'll do damage. I've heard horror stories. I, I, uh, I, I, uh, uh, a couple in our church, and I won't say who they are, that they, they told me that the church they came from, that they wanted to be disciples. They tried to get disciples three or four times, and nobody had ever worked with them. They just got lost in the shuffle. Finally, they, gave, they got contacted by a kid, and he says, I'm, we're going to disciple you. He was married. And they said, oh, that's great. So they're waiting. So they're supposed to have a meeting on a particular night at a time. So the, the, door, the kid says, here's the lessons. Look them over. If you have any questions, just give us a call. Well, that's their discipleship. That, thank you very much. That's, that's what you get. I mean, I've heard horror stories out there. And you know what? They're unprepared. They're unprepared. If you would do that in my church, you would be dead. If it was a Monday night, you'd be dead by Tuesday. And then I've watched people, I call them drone disciplers. They just drone on. I mean, they, they, there's, no, there's, no, there's obviously no preparation. And if you're not going to prepare your discipleship, I just assume, you know, that you don't do it at all. Just come and sit. But, you know, when it's your turn to disciple, you just read the lesson verbatim. I mean, I know what. We'll just send you a tape of somebody reading it and you can get discipled that way. You've you got to put yourself into it. The message cannot be a sterile message. The message, if it's come from you, has to be you. If you're not... If you're just, okay, now we're going to disciple and uh, this lesson here is an incredibly exciting lesson. And I, I, I didn't sleep hardly at all last night just thinking that I was going to teach this today. And you have your Bibles over there, turn there um, to this verse right here. And uh, you've got to get in it, man. 
It'll do damage to the cause of Christ. Devil will see to it. Putting men and women in a place of spiritual leadership before they have all the issues worked through in their own life will be a disaster in time. It just will. Sending a fool out with a message in his hand will always come back to bite you. Believe me. Uh, You will always find young men who want the privilege of ministry without the accountability and the responsibility of ministry. And, uh, and again, I'm not looking for perfection. That's, that's, that's not even in the car. I'm just looking for consistency. Then he says in verse 7, the legs of the lame are not equal. So is a parable in the mouth of a fool. And uh, now a couple of things here, verse 7. Uh, verse 7 will add to our understanding of, of the feet uh, in the first six verses we've looked at so far. Uh, it says the legs of the lame are not equal. Simply based on what we have already said, it's now taking it to the point where we see that a fool who isn't prepared has no balance in their life. And Proverbs 11.1 1 says a false balance is an abomination in the sight of God. There's no balance in the world. There's no strong consistency. There's no strong, consistent walk. They're up, they're down, they're in, they're out. They're, there's nothing you can bank on. Uh, you don't, you give them a message to deliver, you just pray to God that it's a good day for them. No longevity in church, no, 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 no learning the Bible, no growing, no people ministry. I mean, everything is just, you know, it's just, there's always something that conflicts with, with that purpose and that process. And everything in their life is out of balance. And, you know, they've made terrible choices and they still do. You never examine yourself before you decide to do something. You never, if you're not sure, ask to get help with it. Oh, no, no, no. You're just absolutely sure this is of God until everybody knows it isn't of God. You never examine yourself. You certainly don't know yourself, and you're never going to prove yourself. Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, James 1, 8, and that is so true. And it's, uh, it's just that simple. And then the last part of verse 7, so is a parable in the mouth of a fool. Now, I think this is absolutely astoundingly interesting. Here he uses the example of a parable in the mouth of a fool. When I first saw that years ago, it, it just, it, I just said to myself, wow. Now, there's a place over and over again, you see it, where God will say something that will lend so much weight to an overall concept that it's, you'd have to really be an, an idiot to miss it. Now, a parable in the Bible is an absolute biblical truth that in the Bible, in Matthew, starting in Matthew chapter 13, were put into a mystery form because of Israel's rejection of the king and the kingdom, Christ. And, and I'm just saying, I, I, when, I wrote, when I saw this years ago, I just, it amazed me that how he would choose a parable in relationship to somebody being prepared, knowing the scriptures and knowing the Bible. Because I'm going to tell you right now, there's nothing in the Bible that I know of that will, will show where a person is at with their Bible in understanding than a person who can completely understand and can lay out the parables that's found in the book of Matthew. They cover everything in the Bible. 
You can't explain them and understand them without knowing. And I know that seems like it's, it's inconceivable, but it's true. Those, those parables cover everything in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And when you understand them and you see them and you figure it out what he's doing and how he's doing it, you've got to know your Bible. Now, I, I, I'm not saying, please, I am not saying that you have to know all the parables before you can be an effective minister. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that, uh, you know, and I'll be honest, most of you are well on your way, and a lot of you are already there. I get that. But the point is uh, that in all of this, as he's, he uh, is understanding God and his word, and when you walk in the light of the principles that God will give you understanding, and I showed you last week the seven key things to understanding. You show me a guy who has, who has perfect understanding in the mysteries, and I'll show you somebody who knows his Bible. And they're designed that way. And again, and fools need not apply. These aspect of a parable, and that's why he used it in, in the concept of understanding and being prepared and taking a message it's not that you're going to go out with a message of the parables. It's saying that if you understand the parables, they are so connected in the Bible. Every fiber aspect of everything in the Bible will dovetail into those parables. In the scholarly world, they will define a parable as, as a, a figurative uh, expression, an allegorical verse. Some heavenly truth. I had my Jerry Falwell, Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, uh, dictionary of the of things in the Bible, which I go back to many, many times, just for to see how the remember how the world does it. And under a parable, here's what they say. Now, this is a school that was a, supposedly a fundamental Baptist school, probably trained thousands and thousands and thousands of guys that are in the ministry right now. And this is the kind of approach they take to the greatest key in the Bible that he told you that a parable in the mouth of the fool. And it says this, a parable is often no more than an external metaphor. Using figurative language in the form of a story to illustrate any particular truth. Now, that is absolutely the scholarship for you, and nothing could be farther from the truth. Parables are a clear doctrinal teaching about a major doctrine in the Bible and, and, and veiled in a mystery because of somebody's unbelief and their hatred for the truth. And when you see them, God will unlock your understanding because of your attitude toward the book. The Holy Spirit of God will illuminate those things for you, and you will see it as it really is. Now, in the book of Matthew, you know, in Matthew chapter 1 through chapter 11, that's where you have Christ proving himself. And in chapter 12 and 13 is where they make their rejection. In chapter 13 through the end of the book is where you find what we call the kingdom parables. And the parables are certainly appear to be in some figurative mystery language, but that's by design. He designed it that way so that the arrogant, conceited religious cults of the day couldn't get any more information out of him. Their exact truth, but in a mystery. 
that the people who rejected truth, hated truth, hated Christ, could have gotten at the truth. And that's why the Bible scholars today, the PhDs and guys like at Liberty and all those places, they can't get a thing out of it. God closed it up, and they have to, only thing they can do with it is, well, it's an allegorical and it's in a figure metaphor. A meta what? A metaphor. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 11 through 15, This is where the parables begin. Now, let me just, and I'm like, here's the test, okay? Let me just, he, he said it, parable in the mouth of a fool. He picked the word. So there's something about parables that he is equating with a fool, equating with understanding, and equating with the message. Now, when you look at that in Matthew chapter 13, the first thing you're going to find in Matthew, that there are 12 parables. And I would ask somebody, why there are 12 then the second thing is that there's 12, but then when you count them up and you look and examine, you'll find there's 13. Why is there 12, and then why is there another one that makes 13? Then I'd ask somebody, in Matthew, they're split up. You'll see that in chapter 13, there are seven parables, and then you have a break, and the remaining five parables are not found till chapter 18 through chapter 25. Now, why is that? Did they just forget to put them all in seven and said, oh, before I finish this book, I need to add these in? What's the design behind that? Now, and and then the 13th one is found in Matthew chapter 22. What separates the 13th one from the other 12? What is the one key word that you look for in all of these that when you see it or you don't see it, begin to show you where you're at? And then explain what each one means, break it down to fit it into all the pieces of the rest of the Bible, what God is doing in Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, because that's what they do. Because they're exact doctrinal truths that is put in a mystery form. And that's why he says, the, uh, in a parable in the mouth of a fool. And that's why he uses the example. And fundamentally, I get it. It's aimed at the preachers today. I understand that. But I'm going to also tell you, it fits to me and to you. It's the difference between knowing some things about the Bible and knowing the Bible. Now, I'm going to give you this. You will be just fine in discipling and working with people and doing all the stuff that you do if you just know a lot of things about the Bible. If that's where you want to stop, that's okay. But the levels of consistency growth in biblical things never stops. And you need to get to the place where you understand the whole counsel of God. And the way you do that is to realize that God keeps revealing truth to you. He keeps adding truth to you. He builds that reservoir of understanding in your life to an incredible, uh, uh, incredible state. And you continually keep adding it to your life. We talk about it all the time. The key word, you know, to the Bible uh, in you is the word soundness. What I try to build in you is somebody sound, not blown about by every wind of doctrine. I, not want, I just don't want you to believe what you to believe. I want you to know why you believe it. I want you to be able to sit down with anybody, anytime, anywhere, any place in time, and take them through the scriptures and show them where you're right and where they're wrong. I want you to come to the place at some point in your life that you could, any book in the Bible, in 30 seconds or less, you could stand up and teach and lay it out and give it to them if you were put on the spot to do it. 
I want somebody that has the ability to, that has a soundness to them. That when I give you the message and you're going out, I don't have to worry about you. I don't have to worry about where you're going to be next week or what you're going to do. I don't have to worry about you being up and down and in and out, that your emotion just playing havoc with you. I want a soundness in you. I want you to be rock solid. I want to know that in this church, when you get the message and you go preach that message and you give that message, it's sound. And it starts with me teaching you sound doctrine. That sound doctrine, when you work on the inward man, it produces a sound mind. When you let the word of Christ be in you, it was also in Christ Jesus, that will produce, when you speak the message, sound words. The words will form themselves into a sound speech. Everybody will see it and understand that you were sound in the faith. And then they'll recognize and understand that you teach and preach and deliver the message of God based on sound wisdom. And when you deal with them in the word of God, they're going to understand that you do it with sound discretion. And the verses for that is 1 Timothy chapter 1, 10, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 7, 2 Timothy 1, 13, Titus chapter 2, verse 8, Titus 1, 13, and Proverbs 3, verse 21. Everything based out on building a soundness in you. And this is what we do to send out the message. We're not going to send it out in the hand of a fool, but rather in the hand of a wise man with the understanding of the message because he got the message for himself. He saw the value of the message. He saw his worthlessness in delivering the message, and then he saw that God allowed him in spite of that to take the message, and the message now means something to him. And you've learned how to deliver it and apply it to be a prophet to those that hear you, prophet in the sense of a value. When you go to Lincoln or you go to the mission or when you go this or when you disciple somebody or you do your work at volleyball like so many of you did last night, the people come away, never, never showing it. You can't see it. Even if you ask them, they might not. But deep down inside, you know this. The Holy Spirit of God took the message that you gave them and while you're eating your big sandwich at Jason's Deli, Holy Spirit of God doing a little cooking on his own. So you get saved and then you begin to examine yourself. You begin to know yourself. You know your limitations. You know what you can do and what you can't do. Amen. And in the aspect of that, you, you learn to prove yourself. And based on with that, you take, uh, you know, you, you've taken your life and you develop it three ways. You're always looking at the feet of Jesus, looking up at him, Godward. You're taking the things that God gave you in our story, the hair. And remember our story the other night in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, that the hair of a woman was for her covering? Shows her submissiveness. When she took her hair and put that ointment on his feet and then used her own hair, she is totally, completely sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, looking up at him and with her hair, completely in submission to him. And that's a picture where every one of us ought to be. She's looking Godward. She got involved herself. It was inward. 
And the Bible says that the whole house smelled the ointment. It went outward. And that's why the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished. All the new Bibles say thoroughly. It's not thoroughly, it's truly, truly, from the inside out. You look Godward, inward, and then outward, truly, from the inside out unto all good works. Not sinlessly perfect, but perfect for carrying the message. By examining yourself, knowing yourself, and proving yourself. But in your own personal life, by always looking Godward, always letting it affect you inward, and then it'll take care of the outward. It's just that simple. Proverbs chapter 26 is a great chapter. Understanding and deciding fools is a great chapter for all of us. You know why? Because we all have a tendency to be a fool. And it just helps keep us between those white lines. Helps show us what we need to continue to do. Reaffirms in my world what I'm doing with you. How important you are to this church. How that everybody here, if you have a desire to learn the Bible, a desire to be everything God wants you to be, a desire to take the message that God gave you at salvation, and then through that process, go back out and give the message, I'm in. But there's a process you've got to do it. At some point in our lives, folks, we've got to quit being the fool that we are. And we've got to move up smartly and forward. And we've got to come to the point where we, uh, we, uh, we change those things. And we do that to build us on, based on, as I said, sound doctrine, builds a sound mind, builds sound word, being sound speech. Everybody sees the sound faith, and then your sound wisdom and discretion is outward. Based on what you do with the process of transformation in your life, of allowing God to make you more like him every day of your life. Well, we'll hold up there, and next week we'll get into the little farther on in Proverbs.